Welcome to this episode of Keeping It Wild. Today, we sit down with a good friend of mine, Ron Ratland, aka Fat Kid on a Bike. By his own admission, Ron is just a regular guy, but on Sunday, the 30th of June, 2013, at precisely 7.30am, Ron would embark on a rather irregular journey to the opening ceremony of the 2015 Rugby World Cup in England. At this point, you should be asking yourself two things. One, going to watch the Boca in England is cool and all, but how's this anything but regular? And two, if the Rugby World Cup's in 2015, why is Ron leaving two years early in 2013? And herein lies the clue to a life-changing decision that would put a normal guy into an abnormal life forever. Because Ron was not just going to the Rugby World Cup, Ron was going alone and he was going to cycle through every single African country. To cycle from Cape Town to the UK would take the fat kid two years and he's been cycling to Rugby World Cups ever since. So Ron or Ron Rutland, um, thanks so much for for being part of this Keeping It Wild podcast. Um, it's an absolute pleasure and uh, <laughs> delighted you're making it happen. Yeah, I like when I when I started this podcast, I was I was like, who do I interview? Who are the first people to have on here? And um, and I was like, my whole adventure journey started like years ago. And I remember I first met you um, on Putfoot Rally, actually. Yeah, that's and right. that, that that's like a soft adventure. Like you yeah. you got a vehicle and you get to go through Africa, what like seven countries, seventeen days or whatever. And um, and back then you were like a rugby player. I think I think Bobby Skinstead joined you or someone, and it was like all rugby. And and then fast forward, I don't think we spoke again for like two or three years. And then the next time I was with like John Mackey and Brando, and they they said, "Oh, we just need to pick someone up. We're going to go do our first hundred mile race or run. It wasn't even a race." And I pitch up at your house and pick you up from from your house, and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm ready, but um, my shoes were stolen last night." <laughs> we basically drove to to Neisner with you not having shoes, getting ready to go run a hundred mile run. So that that's really my like my start of adventure, and I and I'm pretty sure it's the same place where where your whole thing started. Like, what what got you into it? What was the this turning point that got you into adventure? Um, wow, Blake, that's, uh, it wasn't a eureka moment. Um, but for me, I'd lived overseas for a long time. I mean, I left, so I left South Africa after university in, I finished, finished university in Peter Maritzburg in 1996. I went to go and play, went to go to Australia to play a six month rugby season. Um, and the whole idea was to go and play rugby for six months, save a bit of money and then travel for six months, then come back to South Africa and decide what I want to do with my life. Um, but I ended up being away for 12 years. Um, so <laughs> I kind of, you know, so I reckon, you know, I lived, you know, I was lucky enough to live in, I went from Australia to Hong Kong, to the UK, to Thailand, back to Hong Kong. So it was all, you know, a bit of a slightly nomadic lifestyle, but it was always within certain parameters. Uh, and I guess from a working point of view, there were elements of it that could be considered adventurous. Um, but in the traditional sense of the word adventure, um, it was something I'd always dreamed about. I mean, I remember reading National Geographic growing up, you know, cover to cover every month and just being fascinated and curious by the world out there. Um, but growing up, 
Um, our family never went overseas. Um, I think maybe we had two family holidays down to South Broome, and that's from Durban, <laughs> which is, you know, an hour down the coast. So that was about a, as adventurous as we were as a family. So I don't know where it, where it came from, but somewhere deep inside of me, I sort of had this curiosity for the world. Um, and when I used to read these stories and of travel and adventure and read these National Geographics, um, I was always like, wow, wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, I'd love to do that one day. Um, but in the back of my mind, I knew that it wasn't for me. It was always something that richer people did or luckier people did or cooler people or more athletic people did. Um, so I guess I always had this deep down desire, but never actually actioned it or believed that it was in my grasp. Um, and it slowly started dawning on me uh, in my mid-30s at this stage that the only difference between uh, that person that's gone and done that crazy adventure or that person that's gone and soccer around the world or that person that's gone and done climbed that mountain or whatever it was, the only difference between them and me was the fact that they made the decision to do it. And, uh, you know, I'd spent 35 years of my life telling myself why I couldn't do it and why it was always for other people. Um, that that was the only difference between me and them um, sort of empowered me to go off and uh, go off and, and try my own adventures. And if you ask Ron, what is the thing that separates the ordinary from the extraordinary? And he'd say action. We all have great ideas, but the only thing that will ever turn an idea into reality is a commitment to actually doing it. As the famous tagline from the popular brand says so well, just do it. Uh, I started looking at the map of Africa um, and I'd been, you know, as I said, luckily I'd traveled a lot in my previous life, in my adult life, um, but I'd never been north of Malawi in Africa. Um, and obviously Cape to Cairo is the classic sort of African overland route, uh, whether it's on a 4x4 or a motorbike or or bicycles nowadays, you know, there's an annual, or I think it's a biannual ride, uh, fully supported ride from Cairo to Cape Town. Tour d'Afrique guys run that. I think you pay ten to $15,000 for the privilege. But what a cool trip. What an amazing trip over four or five months. So I kind of looked at, looked at Cape to Cairo and my initial decision was to do a sort of six-month sabbatical. So get someone hand over the reins of running the rugby for six months. Uh, I'd go and get a bicycle cycle up the east coast of Africa. Um, and obviously there's a, you know, there's a fair amount of resource to, to sort of fall back on and to do the research on. Um, and I started looking at this route and obviously I started getting super excited by it. And, you know, you go down these rabbit holes of the sort of bikes you need and the camping gear and, and all this sort of thing. And uh, I started planning this route and, and I had the map of Africa and I was, you know, looking at, obviously looking at the route. And then I looked at, U and Uganda was the first country that springs to mind that I, I saw that I was cycling past, but not going through. And I thought, oh, I've heard so much about Uganda. I wouldn't mind just adding in a little loop to go through Uganda. And then it's like, well, if I'm going to go to Uganda, I might as well go to Burundi and Rwanda. Um, and that sort of that exercise sort of expanded into me over a few glasses of wine one night with a map of you know the world Africa map on my kitchen table. Um, and I started more out of curiosity than anything initially. I started, you know, just trying to work out whether it would be feasible and possible to cycle through every single country on mainland Africa. And I spent hours and hours and hours with a black marker pen, sitting with my computer, just, you know, obviously some countries, the borders are closed between different countries. So, um, you know, hours and hours and hours. And eventually I drew this black line that went from Cape Town to Cairo, but through all 48 countries on mainland Africa. And all of a sudden, the sort of, the sort of six, six month, 
10,000, 12,000 kilometer journey was now like looking like a, a two year, 40,000 kilometer journey. But it's amazing. As soon as I drew that black line on the map and realized that technically it was possible, I said, that's what I want to spend. That's, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. And who helped you, who helped you with like the maps or the plotting or like just understanding like how do you get from like Rwanda to Uganda to like these countries are complex. Uh, Kingsley Holgate was very helpful. I got introduced to him um, and I, and, and show him his wife had actually just recently passed away at the time. And I uh, took this map of Africa and I went to his home in Zanquazi, north of Durban. Um, and I think, you know, it, it was through a good, you know, good friend of his, the, the connection. And when I first arrived, there, it was like Sunday afternoon, five o'clock. Um, and it was a, and my initial reaction was like, oh, he's just like another guy who wants some advice on a trip that's probably never going to happen, you know? And, um, but anyway, I pulled out this map of Africa and I said, Kingsley, I want to cycle from Cape Town to Cairo through every country in Africa. I showed him this map with a black line on it. And then you could just see his eyes open up and we would have spent, I arrived at five o'clock in the afternoon. I think I left at midnight after about four bottles of wine. Um, and we only got as far as Ethiopia, which is like a third of the way in or, you know, and it, we just, and he was like, got so excited and every, he would say, Ron, if you go, you know, make sure if you're going past Lake Tanganyika, you should go and stay there. Look these people up, you know, look out for the Tetsi fly belt in this region. I mean, the level of detail and the, and, and I just like, and this is like Africa's most traveled man. Uh, he's done adventures literally in every country in Africa over his 40 or 50 year career. And to have someone like that, so enthusiastic for my plans and I had zero track record, but he just, I think he just realized that I was serious about it. I think he realized that I was all in on it. Uh, I think he probably saw a little bit of himself, you know, as a younger man. And so with a little help from one of Africa's most seasoned adventurers, Ron's plan was taking shape. The only problem for our regular guy is that his trip had never been attempted by anyone in any form and so the road would be less traveled than any before. And connecting these dots would be up to Ron. I mean, I was in the middle of the, the Northern Congolese jungle, you know, and the border crossing was literally this dugout canoe between these two villages. Uh, um, and the, I mean, the shock of the locals at seeing a white man and seeing a white man on a bicycle um, they actually on the on the Gabon side they had this like ledger like old school ledger where you fill out your details um, and as I crossed the river in this dugout canoe you could see on the other side there was like a soldier on the on the river bank um, and as I got there like, you know I'd, I mean I'd be on the road now a year and a half I mean I was pretty relaxed with these things and you realize that all these sort of oh my god what could go wrong normally doesn't um, so you cross this river crossing and this guy comes down to meet me obviously doesn't you know don't speak a word of each other's language, but he takes me to this little, uh, you know, hut basically. Um, and he's like the first sort of layer of, <laughs> of immigration, but the locals can cross freely, you know, because there's a village either side, they go to the shop. So there's no problem with him, but as a foreigner, you've got to go through this immigration process, but you can almost see his excitement at actually having something to do, you know? <laughs> so, but first thing he does, he had one of those, like, uh, I can't remember what they call, but almost like, almost looks like, basically like a pot with a flask. And he's basically, he's, I'm sure his wife's like packed him his lunch for the day. So the first thing he does is pull out his food and start sharing it with me, like his, his lunch, which is- No way. Yeah. And then he like pulls out this ledger eventually, like, and it's and it's like one of those, like almost straight out of a storybook, like, 
blows the dust off it, opens it up. Um, and then he says, you know, you got to fill in your details, your passport details. But the previous entry there was from like five or six years before. So that's like how remote this place was. And it was like, I can't remember what the passport was, like a French passport or something. So, uh, you know, anyway, so that's the, the point being that you can't plan those things. Those things you have to rely on, you know, as you go and local advice. And, you know, I had old fashioned paper maps for most countries. And I'd sort of, you know, tell people I want to, you know, and again, it's human, humanity is amazing, you know, just with a bit of sign language and pointing and you, you can, people recognize a village name. And the one thing I learned quite quickly is that if you tell somebody in the middle of the Congo, in the middle of Sudan, that you're cycling to London, um, you know, maybe they associate London with the premiership that they've seen some football and, you know, some black and white TV somewhere. Um, but to them, it's like, it, it, it's incomprehensible. Like it's, it, people are less, in, but if you tell them you're cycling to the next village, which is like 50 k's away, then it's like, oh, 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 so strong, so strong, so far, you know, they're much more impressed about, because, you know, obviously the world is this, and that's what they can comprehend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, so the answer story, Kings of the Old Gate was amazing in some of the macro and even some of the detailed stuff. Uh, but as I went, yeah, I relied just on, you know, and you can't research every day of, you know, every route and every kilometer of a 40,000 kilometer journey. You do have to rely on just, to, so I could, you know, planned what I could and then just sort of let, went with the flow after that. What's so amazing on a bicycle is like if you drive into a rural village in Africa, just from my own experience, if you go in a four by four or you all blinged up with like technology and like you, you so disconnected to people strangely. And I, I don't know what it is, but the minute you're on a bicycle, like equality is like, it's there. Like everyone shares, everyone communicates, you get included. I remember in Malawi when I was cycling there, like, I'd go to like the toilet at the garage where all the truckers and four by fours go. And when one of the locals saw that I was on a bicycle, ran up to me, he's like, in his broken English or whatever and sign language, as you said, like, don't go there, don't go there. Like, we got a nicer toilet at home. (laughs) And like, like invite you into their house. And, and so I can just imagine like the crazy experiences of humanity that you must have. Yeah. seen along the way like there's this perception that africa is dangerous or like but but my gut feeling is like there's no better place like if you just embed yourself um, yes. and go there like you're not better or superior but you're, yeah, it's beautiful yeah there's something there's something about a bicycle that makes i think because i think it comes down to the fact that you're relatable i think everybody understands a bicycle um, even in the most remote village in Malawi or the most remote village in Morocco or wherever you are, or the most remote village in Iran or Pakistan or India, wherever you are in the world, there's something about a bicycle that's universally understandable. I think people, uh, you know, it makes you relatable. Um, it, 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 you know, and it's just the most, I don't know, like I still, you know, I still have, I still think one day I'd love to go and redo my African trip on a motorbike one day and just go and, you know, just go and redo the routes as much as possible and do it with, you know, a bit of hindsight and experience and as the body gets a bit weary, but there's something about a bicycle that makes you relatable. Um, and you, you can't, but you can't, but experience everything that you're going through. Um, you know, you notice every bump, you know, the physical, I love the physical challenge of the, of the, of cycling, um, you know, you know, guys are going to do the roof of Africa on their motorbikes. My goodness, that's hard. Um, so there's, you know, I'm not saying it's, it, with an engine doesn't make it hard, but there's something about the physical challenge of riding everything. Um, 
you know, every uphill, every downhill, literally every bump on the road, you, you see bugs, you see chameleons, you see snakes, you see, you just, because you're going at a pace where you, you know, you're not just rushing through things. And if you get somewhere where it feels in inverted commas a bit dodgy or somewhere that's a bit uncomfortable or a bit rough or just a bit, you know, scrappy or messy. And you, and normally, you, and like if you're, again, if you're in a car or a motorbike, you just zoom through it and not even worry about it, you know. But on a bicycle, you're forced to experience the good things, the bad things. I mean, this is fast forwarding massively, but I've just done a, a, a trip from cycling, a two-week ride from Cape Town to Namibia. And I mean, every you're basically going due north. So every morning you wake up, the sun's coming up on your right, setting on your left. Um, you know, you you feel connected to the world. You feel connected to the environment. You feel um, and the people. Like you know, you can you can, you're going slow enough. You can smile at people as you cycling past them. You can have a conversation. You can have a two three word conversation. Um, so they really are. It really makes you relatable. You can only carry so much stuff, so it forces you to live very very simply. Tent, sleeping bag, cooking stove. Um, couple of spare parts, a couple of changes of clothes. It really is a very simple life and it makes you realize that, you know, and especially when you're cycling through sub-Saharan Africa where most people's biggest concerns every day are food and water and that becomes your concern every day. Um, food, water, and where you're going to sleep. So I think, yeah, you know, you know so it's relate, that's relatability is the, is, the, is the big one. People are often quick to point out the perceived dangers or negative aspects of doing something as wild as Ron had set out to do. And I intentionally use the word perceived here because 99% of the time, perception and reality are not aligned. And the human spirit of generosity and kindness is far more prevalent than you would imagine. So Angola is the first trip on my African journey that um, I'd never been to before. Um, it's the first country as a South African uh, that you need a visa for. Uh, but it's also the first country that people who had traveled to uh, Angola had told me, Ron, what a nightmare. The police are corrupt. It's just a bureaucratic nightmare. People will be trying to just steal from you and rob you at every turn and corner. Um, and so it was a little bit of despite having been on the road for, I don't know, three or four months at that stage and had amazing experiences in the first six or seven countries that I'd been through. Um, and I'd experienced just, just overwhelming hospitality and goodness from people from every every walk of life imaginable. It was still with like a certain sense of trepidation, I guess, that I, you know, approached the, the border uh, between Zambia and Angola, pretty remote part of the country. I'm um, actually just adjacent to the Zambezi River because the Zambezi flows out of Angola where I crossed in. Um, and cycled into, you know, across the border, it was actually no problem. It was a Sunday, so the guy was, a, I think he'd been at church or something, so it was a slightly delayed border crossing, but there was no stress at all. Um, and the first couple of days of cycling and going, it's wild, it's rural. Um, and the only sort of, um, I guess the overwhelming sort of feeling that I had from people was more just curiosity, <laughs> was people just sort of staring at me. It was it was probably the first time of the trip when I really experienced like kids being a bit anxious and, you know, sort of standing behind their parents as, they, as I approached um, so you realize it was quite a novelty for them to see, you know, I guess a white bloke on a bike. Um, and, you know, and and after a few days, I got to this this town, I think it's called Kazombo. And it's the only town of significance at all, really, that I, that I cycled through my time in Angola. And I'm pushing my bike down the main, and when I say road, I mean, it's just this track in the middle of the town looking for a shop to get some supplies. And then all of a sudden, this policeman sort of comes out of this guard hut, 
you know, on the left hand side of the road. And he's a pretty scruffy dressed gentleman, you know, and he comes over to me and he starts rattling off in Portuguese. Um, and he starts rubbing his thumb and forefinger together at the end. And I thought, ah, I know what that is. That's the international sign language that he's looking for a, an extra toll fee. And I'd made up my mind that I wasn't even going to enter. If this ever happened, I wasn't even going to enter negotiations. Um, and this was the first time it had happened. So I went through my sort of pre-planned routine of sort of patting my pockets and saying, no, no, no money. Sorry, no money. And he looks at me a little bit like strangely or a bit curiously. And he's, I couldn't quite, pro, you know, he obviously can't quite process what's going on. So you go through this procedure again and he starts talking, 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 rubbing his thumb fore, forefinger together. And I go, no, no money. And then third time he starts, but he actually puts his hand into his pocket and pulls out a couple of crumpled notes and sort of pushes them towards me. And I'm getting like a bit agitated. So I sort of gently sort of pushed his hand. I said, no, no money, no money. And he goes, he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, coca, coca. And he does this sort of, uh, you know, shows a sort of sign for drinking a Coke. And I suddenly realized that this policeman who probably earns $50 a month was actually offering me money, like saying, do you need money for a coat? Do you need something? Um, and I've never in my life been more like mortified or embarrassed or like just pissed off with myself that I allowed like my preconceived idea of what this policeman would, would, would want from me to sort of cloud my judgment. And here he is being like, I mean, and, and it happened. It happened in Mozambique. It happened in Zambia. It happened in Botswana. Like, the people who have nothing in the way that we judge wealth had offered me food, had offered me water, had never turned me down for a place to pitch my tent. It always said, don't put your tent there, come sleep inside or whatever it was. So I'd already experienced so much of this goodness, but I'd allow this sort of preconceived idea to sort of cloud my judgments. Um, so all of a sudden, like I said to this person, no, oh, I've got money, no problem, no problem. <laughs> so, um, but he, no, he insisted. And uh, so he actually bought me a Coke. And uh, he went and literally, well, whatever the local equivalent of Coke was there, and uh, I was like, I couldn't give him money for it. I couldn't, he would just wouldn't take anything. Um, so I told like, my camera and I said to, um, you know, ask someone, can you take a photo of us for us? Uh, and before he did that, he, he actually went back into his guard hut, put on his like belt, put on his beret, he's tucked in his shirt. Um, and that's a photograph that I, I treasure um, greatly. So, so straight after cycling through, what is it, 42 countries going a two-year trip basically across Africa and burning your fingers, should I say? Like, yeah, you, I'm yeah. sure you learned a lot of lessons about adventure and yourself. Um, something, something ignited and it, it wasn't just a sabbatical. Like now suddenly you had this idea to cycle from one World Cup to the next. And, and so you followed the sunrise essentially from London all the way to Tokyo, was it? Yeah. Um, and and the only bit of this that I know, like I, I almost lost contact with you because you're like in the middle of nowhere. But um, our friends at Fun and Co, Andrew King and them, like I'd see him every now and then when he came back from a trip with you and then at the end got to watch this documentary of, of you guys cycling literally across chasing the sunrise um, yeah. to Tokyo. And, and the, the thing that stood out, like this was like a wild trip. Like Africa's wild in a different way. This was like, wild like in that documentary there's like a landslide that almost killed you guys like yeah. this was super wild what what led you to chasing the world cup because obviously now you're chasing another world cup but like what led to that and and w tell us about this documentary and um so i decided basically to 
to ride from Twickenham, the host of the 2015 final, to Tokyo, the host of the 2019 Rugby World Cup. So straight across Europe and Asia, um, and I'm going to raise money for Child Fund. I want to make the, f- the fundraising a big focus of this. Um, I got introduced to a guy through my doctor, uh, who and his son actually worked for the charity organization. So him and I, on a handshake, agreed to do it together. Um, and we set a very ambitious target of cycling from Cape Town, sorry, from London to Tokyo, some 20,000 kilometers in about 33 weeks, which works out to 600 kilometers a week. So this really was a race to the Rugby World Cup. That's like 600 kilometers a week, but you're like cycling over like the Nepalese mountain ranges. Yeah, yeah. So. 600 kilometers a week for 33 weeks, every, you know, back, back to back to back to back. Um, and the way it worked out, we actually started in London on the 2nd of February. So the first month we did 30, we just put our head down, took us 33 days to cross Europe to Istanbul in the middle of winter, cycled across Turkey, Iran in the middle of winter. I mean, it's, it's a, a challenge that, enormous you know physical you know environmental challenge as you pointed out we cycled over the himalayas into pakistan and india and hit there in the middle of the summer season the monsoon season so that was a challenge so it it was a really audacious thing to plan to put it off but this time we were really well supported so dhl came on board they were one of the six spot they call the worldwide partners one of the six major sponsors of the world cup they already supported the charity um and James and I were actually tasked with delivering the match whistle for the opening game. So World Rugby have a tradition where they produce a commemorative whistle for the opening game. It's considered quite an honour by the referees to be given the to the opening game. So, and it kind of tied in with you know delivering with DHL. So we were tasked with delivering this whistle, um, and and we raised about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for Child Fund in the end, um, and it was the most in a very different way, but but for me the most rewarding I'd say year of my life in the fact that it was. You know, I think Africa was bigger in scale and duration and, and 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 difficulty, to be honest, and lack of experience. But the plan that we put together for 2019 uh, with this charity focus, doing it with a, basically a complete stranger, having all these stakeholders involved and pulling it off. And when you finish there and you get to Tokyo and your sponsors are happy, World Rugby are happy, the charity's happy, James and I are happy, uh, it, it really is very fulfilling. And um, as you say, we're lucky enough that DHL decided to um, – uh, fund a documentary. Yeah, I mean, to have the film, oh, sorry, to have the journey documented in a film, in a full-length feature film, I mean, I just can't believe it. Like, if you had told me when I set off from Cape Town eight years before, whatever it was, that um, that we'd have a documentary made about something I'd done in my life, I would have told you were mad. So, yeah, it's crazy when you go and when you take these big, bold decisions in life, it's crazy where things lead. I remember watching the, I was lucky enough to be invited to that premiere with you, and um and it was just so mind-blowing. Like, it's the most amazing documentary. Um, and I think everyone should go watch it if they haven't. Um, but I don't want to give it away, but there's a point where you guys actually on GoPro caught a landslide washing you away. And somehow you didn't lose that whistle, for one thing. Um, but the other thing is you got so sick, you almost didn't finish. Like, like that documentary, and I don't want to give too much away, and let's not even talk about it too much, but like that documentary just shows like, the serious highs and lows of like what you went through and and there's no ways you can finish that trip the same person. At that stage, I was probably in somewhere in the 60 or 70,000 kilometer range of cycling you know, through probably 80 countries. Sometimes something's going to go wrong, you know, with all the planning in the world. And um, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, as, you know the, the incident in Laos with the, with the landslide, that was just me actually. I'd gone ahead. I was on my own at the time and was probably a meter or two from being washed over the side of a cliff and so that was yeah i mean that was very surreal it's 
yeah, I mean, it was certainly a, um, at the time, it's it's weird. Like, I mean, it's, you are facing, you are facing the end. And it was weird. Like, it was obviously, a, there's this panic of trying to save yourself. But it was inside, it's actually quite calm. Like, it was almost like a sadness. Like, I remember going like, we've been through so much and, and it's, so, it's quite sad that this is how it's going to end. And it was like, and I really hope James finishes it. That was my, like, it was weird. Like, it, that was my, it's so crystal clear. That was my thoughts. Like, sadness and like, I hope, this doesn't throw it all off and this is going to cause people so much troubles they're trying to find anyway but there was no time to feel sorry for ourselves on this sort of super tight schedule so the next day it was back on and you know gunning for hong kong and then i got yeah really really ill and but it was you know it was it was super i guess the 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 illness that i picked up was quite rare um so i guess it's unlucky to get that but it was also very lucky that i picked it up going into hong kong which is where you know my doctor lived it does change you i guess and it's it's but so does a, in some ways, so does a close shave with a truck. Um, and it's just, you know, for me, it just kind of reminded me that, uh, you know, you can live a life of trying to avoid discomfort and avoid danger. And, but I mean, you can be walking across London Bridge and some crazed guy comes out with a knife. So <laughs> you, you can only avoid so much, you plan avoid so much. But I don't know if you know a Japanese philosophy. It's called Ikigai. So it's I K I G A I. And it's kind of if you if you can imagine sort of four concentric or four circles, the one being doing what you're good at, um, the other being doing what you enjoy, the other third circle being what can benefit the world broadly, like what what helps other people, um, and the fourth circle, the one I haven't quite got right, is how how to make a living or doing a living doing that and if you could find that sort of sweet spot where those four circles intersect so doing what you enjoy doing what you're good at doing what benefits other people and making a living that seems to be the and I think uh, you, I can see you nodding <laughs> this is I guess it sort of maybe there's a bit of something in it there I got to get into Japan I knew that then and I was going to carry on doing this this for as long as I could and so Ron and James made it to Tokyo alive and well in time to hand over the whistle for the opening match. We know the next World Cup is in France in 2023. So will Ron be cycling there? A rhetorical question if I ever heard one. Of course he is. But it's not so much the question of is he, but how is he? France is pretty much directly west of Japan. And it would make sense to travel in the direction of the sun. But Ron has a different idea. And the course he set would not take him west at all. So then you go through China, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Island Hop, Indonesia, all the way down to a place called East Timor, Timor-Leste. It's a tiny little country right in the far east of Indonesia. Then from there, pop across to Darwin, uh, 4,000 kilometers across the outback of Australia to Sydney. Um, and then from Sydney, fly down to Invercargill and cycle the South Island, North Island of New Zealand. So that was always the plan. And then from Auckland, fly to Santiago in Chile, uh, from over the Andes to Buenos Aires, do a bit of Uruguay, a bit of Brazil, then come back west towards Paraguay, Bolivia, Equ- uh, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, then through Panama, Central America, uh, up the east coast of Mexico, into Texas, and then across the south, up the east of the US, get to New York, um, and then from New York, just because Iceland's on the way to Europe and I've never been, stop off and do a, la- a loop of Iceland, 
then down to Edinburgh, fly to Edinburgh, and then cycle from Edinburgh to Belfast, down to Dublin, down to Cardiff, across to Twickenham, and then a final three days from Twickenham to Paris. That's a long way, a lot of countries, and he'll need a lot of time. So with 2023 fast approaching, where is Ron now? Where, whereabout are you now? Are you in like a coffee shop or a restaurant or something? Well, actually at this campsite where we camped last night and attached to it, there's like this ho- yeah, hotel, I guess, yeah. So I'm in like the kind of, cool. I tried to, it was quiet just now, but now there's a whole lot of people have arrived. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's cool. But it seems to be the best Wi-Fi spot. So yeah. No, that's cool. It, it's real. It's re- you, what you, you're getting the real experience. <laughs> while we're chattering about Japan again, like, like I'm sure while there's translation issues, like their hospitality and, and will to help is like probably the most amazing thing I've ever witnessed in my life. Like. No, boss. I mean, it's amazing. Like every day, we've had an example of that, like a literal example. I mean, we've stopped on the side of the road. Someone will pull up and you know give you some Pakari sweat, which is like the local energy, and they'll offer you that. Um, one guy was cycling. Adam was cycling, and another one guy pulled up next to him, hand him a piece of paper, and it ends up being like a thousand yen gift certificate for convenience stores, which you can take to any Seven Eleven or Lawson's or or mini mart and go and, and you know use it to buy lunch kind of thing so you know the hospitality and the kindness of people is just it's remarkable yeah it's famous for a reason but yeah i mean i think the bike really does just strip you down to basics and the ordinariness of, of day-to-day life and that's one of the, the joys of it you know yeah. you spend so much of your time between and we were just saying no like we were cycling through back streets of the towns that you would just bypass on a holiday. If you came to, to Japan for a three-week holiday, you might go skiing or you might go come for the, the cherry blossoms or you'll come for the onsens or you'll come for adventure race or whatever it is, but you'll go from place to place, you know, jump on a train or bullet train or, you know, fly somewhere and you'll see the cool stuff and it's amazing. But it's all that stuff in between where you actually spend most of your time on a bicycle. What would you want to achieve with other people, with listeners, like, do you want them to walk away feeling something, going and doing something? Like, I really want people. I, I don't know. Like, I'm. If you looked at me ten years ago, and you said like, who would go? Who's going to go and do all this and this? No one would have pointed at me. You know, so I'm like the least likely person to actually be doing this stuff. Like, you know, on the face of it, like, um, and you know, I feel I'm literally living like my true life like I'm reliving life true to myself now um, and it's exciting and I just hope that by me sharing my stories I hope that it maybe motivates other people to to live a version of their true lives or true selves um, and I hope that people that sort of wonder oh, I'd love to do that one day but I'd love to do that but maybe start looking at those buts and realizing that 99% of those buts are completely made up Uh, it's amazing chatting to you and inspiring us um, and your view and hunger for this adventure life and it's it's just super contagious and um, and I don't think it's necessary for everyone but 
you definitely set a standard that that excites me personally and I'm sure many others. So thank you for sharing that. I'm 100% certain we'll chat soon again. Um, thanks so much, Ron. No, thanks, Blake. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm so excited for your journey and uh, the Keeping It Wild journey. And I'll certainly be look forward to, um, you know, it's amazing how much comms you do have in connectivity. I look forward to downloading the episodes and uh, listening to them on my bikes in the middle of Bolivia, wherever it is. <laughs> You'll definitely be our wildest listener, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today. Follow Ron and his adventures and check out his podcast, The Race to Rugby World Cup Pod. And visit racetorugbyworldcup.com to support their cause. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And bring your friends along for the adventure by telling them about keeping it wild. In the meantime, keep well and keep wild. Keep wild.